Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. It's Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for including me in your day today. We've got a lot of um, things to discuss, but let's start where we must. Where in the word are you today? Where in the word are you today? Remember, the text line is always open. You can text me what you're thinking about, what your prayer needs are, um, your holiday hints, and yes, where in the word you are. The text line is 877-933-24. Today is Jeremiah 23.5. The Lord says, The time is coming when I will choose as king a righteous descendant of David. That king will rule wisely and do what is right and just throughout the land. So God is the speaker here, the Lord says, and the Lord says the time is coming. We could actually just settle in to a conversation about the time is coming and what time it is and what time has passed and what time is coming, because those are wonderful Advent themes. Um, You might have a conversation about uh, Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future, In terms of the phrase, the time is coming, Um, what time has already come? What time is it now? And what time is yet to come? The time is coming, God says, this is to the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah, when I will choose as king. Now that God choosing as king is different than the people uh, demanding a king, having kings for themselves, right? Right. So this is uh, the king that God chooses. This is the king of all kings. This is the Lord of all lords. I will choose as king a righteous descendant of David. All right, well, who's David? And why does it matter that um, the king of God's choosing would be a descendant of David? Matthew shares in his genealogy of Jesus that Jesus is uh, the son of Abraham and the son of David, David. it is uh, a term that Matthew is very fond of using in his gospel. It's a good place to turn and look if you want to know more about Jesus as the son of David, the king of kings. Verse 1 um, of Matthew's gospel is actually the, the first appearance of the phrase son of David. It draws our attention to the royal line uh, of King David. Matthew also points to Abraham's name. Um, but David's name tells us that Jesus is of royal lineage. He is David's son. Um, he is God's chosen king, a righteous descendant of David. He fulfills, I mean, among many, many others, he fulfills this prophecy uh, in the prophet Jeremiah. 
So you might want to read Jesus's genealogy today in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, you might want to re-familiarize yourself with who Jesus is and who his line is, what the generations are um, from David to Jesus. And, uh, and and think about maybe your own lineage, the generations past and the generations present and the generations to come. Good good opportunities, good conversations for the day. Um, all right, it is, I will say, a Dickens of a time in the UK. When I say the word Dickens in the UK, Charles Dickens probably comes to your mind. So one of the questions we're going to roam around in today um, that might be fun for you to answer is, what's your favorite version or adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? I feel pretty confident everybody has one. Um, there are actually dozens to choose from. So, uh, you know, first of all, how many can you think of and which one comes to mind or leads your list of uh, favorite adaptations of A Christmas Carol? Maybe it's Mr. Magoo. Uh, <laughs> maybe it is... Uh, the George C. Scott version, or the one where um, Patrick Stewart plays Scrooge. That's probably our family favorite. Uh, Kelsey Grammer plays Scrooge in in one version of it. Tom Carey is the voice of Scrooge in another. Um, Maybe you're a Muppets Christmas Carol person. Um, All right, so uh, all kinds of, uh, of opportunities there for you to weigh in. So you could text me, what's your favorite version of A Christmas Carol? We're going to talk about that um, later today when we talk with Adam Holtz. But next up, I'm going to unpack for you why it is a Dickens of a time in the UK today. What do I mean by that? What's it mean for it to be a Dickens of a time? That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. All right, if I say it's a Dickens of a time, um, my guess is you think that that is some kind of reference to Charles Dickens. So because I wanted to talk about it being a Dickens of a time in the UK related to the Christian faith and those who identify as Christian, um, I decided I better look up what the idiom actually means or from which it derives and come to find out when we say like, oh, it's a Dickens of a time or that's a Dickens of a situation. Um, the, the origin there has nothing to do with Charles Dickens. Um, and everything to do with a phrase uh, that goes like this, devilkins, devilkins, little devils. So it's, it's a little devils of a time. <laughs> that's, the, that's where the dickens of a time, so if you smush, I guess, devilkins down and you keep smushing it down over time, eventually you end up with, it's a dickens of a time. That's where uh, the, the idiom derives from. So when I say it's a dickens of a time in the U.K., uh, what I'm actually referring to is the way that people in the UK have answered a recent census. So here you go. And I'm doing this for a purpose um, in relationship to Advent. And so just hold on to that thought for just a moment. And again, I'm Carmen LeBurge, listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is the Faith Radio Network. If you're just now tuning in, uh, I'm teeing up a headline uh, out of Great Britain, out of the UK, the 2021 census. So just last year. So the United Kingdom surveys its people every 10 years. Um, and unlike, uh, you know, the United States, 
they do it in this like weird off year. So anyway, they did it in 2011. They did it again in 2021. So here's one of the things they always ask. What is your religion? It is a um, it is a voluntary question. So you don't have to answer it. Um, And under the question, what is your religion? There's a box that includes like major world faiths. And then on that list is also no religion. And then underneath the no religion box, you can either write down how you self-identify or choose one of 57 listed categories. So that in and of itself is curious, right? Um, The census is distributed to all the residents of the UK. And the religion question, as I said, is voluntary. 94% of those who filled out the census answered the religion question. So even though it's voluntary, most people actually do answer the question. Um, So there's no stigma one way or another in answering or not answering. 94% of the people answered the question and Christian did remain the most common response. So that's important, right? I want to note that Christian was the most common response to the religion question. However, those who checked the box Christian for the first time in, uh, in history fell below 50%. So for the first time in the history of the census in the United Kingdom, fewer than half of Great Britain's residents checked Christian. Still the most still the most popular answer, but less than half of respondents checked Christian. Um, that's a major change because very nearly 60%, 59.3% checked the box Christian in 2011. Ten years later, of the residents of England and Wales describe themselves as Christian. That's a 13-point decrease in a decade. So you can no longer describe the United Kingdom credibly as a, quote, Christian nation, if by that you mean that it's populated by a majority of people who describe themselves as Christians. Because when we talk about the United States of America being a Christian nation, it's not because we have an official church. It's because the majority of people living in the United States of America consider themselves Christians, self-identify as Christians. Well, you can no longer say that of um, England and Wales because a majority of people in Great Britain no longer describe themselves as Christian. Um, We're going to continue talking about this in just a moment because there still is a state church, the Church of England. And so by that measure, it is a Christian nation, but not by the measure of its actual population. What does that mean and how does it open up an opportunity for us to have conversations in our culture today um, about belief and non-belief, affiliation and non-affiliation and the importance of shedding the gospel, sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good news of great joy for all people in this generation, because people are walking in darkness and they have not yet seen that there is a great light. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen Burge. This is Faith Radio. Hey, did you hear the news recently? There are now 8 billion people in the world. My name's Carmen LaBurge. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Here at Faith Radio, we are telling the whole world about Jesus and helping believers live out their faith every day. If you'd like to help us do that, you're still needed. Your financial support changes lives. You can make a difference with your gift right now at MyFaithRadio.com. Help us reach the world for Jesus Christ.
Tis the season to be jolly and joyous. Fa-la-la. With a burst of pleasure, we feel it arise. Hey, we're back. Um, so we're talking this morning about the status of Christian belief or Christian affiliation, not only here in the United States um, and north across North America, but we're looking across the across the pond, across the Atlantic at what's going on in Great Britain. And we're doing this for a reason, because secularism um, and Western Christianity and expressions of Western Christianity, like what happens in in one part of the European experience and then into the experience of our closest neighbors, those in the UK, um, it doesn't, just doesn't take very long for th- those expressions to find their way across the pond uh, here in, you know, this great experiment of the United States of America. And so, you know, we've certainly noted secularism on the rise for generations in the UK. It is having an impact and effect in terms of how people identify and a shrinking percentage of people in in England now acknowledge that they are Christian. And so there is a columnist at the Guardian whose name is Simon Jenkins who says that this 20 that these 2021 census numbers make the final case for dismantling the Church of England's relationship with the state because in England there still is an official church, the Church of England. Um he says that um the church, the Church of England, should, quote, retire from its prominence in state and civic ceremonies, Remembrance Days, Judicial Oaths, the BBC, the Daily Service. It cannot justify a privilege, the privileged access to, to state schools or seats in parliament. And he says that its buildings, which, you know, are maintained by state funds, uh, that the buildings of the Church of England cannot that cannot sustain congregations should be denationalized. Um So let's talk about this. If you were asked the religion question, would you check the box Christian? Why or why not? Um, When asked, when asked that question, residents of the UK um, gave uh, different answers than they've given in the past. Now, more people than ever checked the box for no religion. Um, And so here in the U.S., we describe that as the rise of the nuns. Right. And we talk about there being now greater than 25 uh, percent of people in the United States describe themselves as nuns, people of no religion. Thirty seven percent of the respondents in the 2021 census for England and Wales described themselves as having no religion. That's a rise of eight million people in a decade. So eight million more people in 2021 described themselves as having no religion in England and in Wales, than did so just a decade ago. Now, the other way to read that is to say that the Church of England, which is a national church, has lost 8 million supposed adherents in a decade. But the reality is these people were not, you know, practicing, uh, even if they self-identified as Christians, they weren't practicing Christians even a decade ago. Like, that's just... So, it's notable. We should pay attention to people who say they are Christians but don't go to church because a decade from now they're probably not going to say they are Christians at all. Like that that's actually one way to think about this. Um why does it matter? Because identity matters and our sense of identity matters. Where we spend our time, um to what or to whom we give our allegiance, our personal um and national creeds, what we believe about ourselves, others and the world and everyone in it. All of those are influenced by the way we describe ourselves in terms of our religiosity. 
Secularism has been on the rise in Western Europe and here in North America for decades. Um, But up until like 2018, majorities still identified as Christians when asked the question, what is your present religion? Like the majorities in in Western European countries and here in North America up until 2018 still identified as Christian. Over COVID, those numbers have dropped off dramatically. People no longer see the need to say they are Christian um, if they're not actually adherents to the faith um, or or engaged in a local church. So um, church attendance actually does matter. And we've been talking about that more and more lately. And um, and I and I want. I want you to hear me say that the church matters. It's it's God's plan um, for how this works itself out, how he declares the good news of great joy for all people. It happens through the church, the body of Christ in the world today. And so I want to encourage you to be engaged in a local congregation. Um, I see a lot of opportunity here. I, I see a lot of opportunity here, um, both here in the United States and uh, and abroad. People are walking in darkness. People are walking in darkness. They need the light of Christ. The prophet Isaiah said, nevertheless, there's going to be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Um, For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, friends, that prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes as the light of the world. Matthew directly affirms in his gospel that Jesus comes as the one who fulfills this prophecy of Isaiah to be the very light of the world, to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, establishing the kingdom of God amidst the kingdoms of this world. We read in Matthew chapter 4, after his temptation in the wilderness by the devil, Jesus embarks on his public ministry. Matthew says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived at Capernaum, which was by the lake in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does that mean? What did it mean to the first people who heard it? What, does it? what did it mean when Jesus said it? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He's instituting among the kingdoms of this earth. He's talking about his own reign as king of kings and lord of lords. So what does that mean today? Because what has changed since the time that Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
And today, what has changed? Well, everything has changed. And nothing has changed. Everything has changed because between the time that Jesus called people to repentance and announced the nearness of the kingdom of heaven in himself, since then, like between then and now, he died and rose again and ascended into heaven and reigns as Lord of all. And that changes everything. That changes everything. And indeed, nothing has changed in terms of the human condition, the deep darkness in which people dwell, and the need for each and every person to hear and have an opportunity to respond to the good news of great joy for all people. The angel declared the good news of great joy to the shepherds. Luke tells us in chapter two of his gospel, just that, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. He is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. Angels we have heard on high. Peter confirms that. Peter talks about our having access to things and information and this good news of great joy that angels longed to know about but never understood. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. So how is it that we now live in a generation that does not know the good news of great joy for all people? How is it that 2,000 years on, people are still walking in deep darkness when the light has shined? How is that possible? Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. You now go, let your light so shine before others that they would see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. So how is it, my friends, that we live in a land populated by people walking in deepest darkness when there are so many who claim to be Christians? My encouragement today is that each and every one of us would go shine the light of Christ into this perverse generation in which we live, that we would share the good news of great joy that is for all people, that we would declare Christ has come, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. Angels we have heard on high. People now need to hear the good news of the gospel from you and I. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, Lydia asked a really good question on the text line. Remember, you can text me, 877-933-2484. Lydia asked a really good question. Uh, Does uh, does the change in the census response in uh, in Europe and in England, specifically here, uh, in England and Wales, um, is it attributable to immigration? Lydia, that's a great question. There are increases in the number of people who describe themselves as Muslim, 3.9 million um, 
up from 2.7 million uh, over that 10 year period of time. But no, that that 1.2 million increase in the Muslim population um, or the uh, 200,000 person increase in the Hindu population, those increases are notable, but certainly um, they don't have anything to do with the fact that uh, that people are responding that they have no religion. It's the 8 million people who in 2011 said they were Christians who now say they are people of no religious faith that's most notable in in terms of the change in the 2021 census for England and Wales. Yes, there's a notable increase in the Muslim and Hindu populations in the country. But again, we're talking about an increase of 1.2 million Muslims um, or 200,000 people who identify as Hindu versus 8 million people who in 2011 said they were Christians, checked the box for Christian, who in 2021 now check the box that they are people of no religion at all. So I just, uh, Lydia, great question, and thank you for asking it. Dan DeWitt's going to join us next. We're going to talk about a number of things that he is noting in uh, in his um, on his site, theolatte.com. We're going to talk about Tolkien, a cave, and a lost manuscript, and we're also going to talk about screw tape being a devilish remix of Proverbs. Hmm. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, our friend Dan DeWitt is back with us. You can find him at Southwest Baptist University. You can also find him at the Theolatte site, theolatte.com. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? I'm well. The question of the morning, which version of Dickens' A Christmas Carol or The Christmas Carol or Scrooge or what other variety or version name, um, which version of it is like your personal or family favorite this time of year? So can I give two? Oh, yeah. Is that fair? Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, lots of lots first. of people give two. Lots of people are giving like... Uh, an animated one and then another one. Okay, so my animated one would be Mickey Mouse. I really oh, like really? the yes, Scrooge I think it's McDuck. McScrooge. Yes. Well, who is he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that but then in terms of like in recent history, I think it came out in 2017, but I didn't watch it until last year. The movie The Man Who Created Christmas about Charles Dickens. Um, that kind of retells the Christmas Carol, but the kind of the story behind it, um, I thought was really, really clever. So, yeah, the man who created Christmas. I, I'm going to have to add that to my list. I didn't even have that on my list. All right, I'm it's adding re- it right now. Really well done. So, um, lots of lots of votes so far for the Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, lots of votes for the George C. Scott version and for the Patrick Stewart version. So if you are out there um, and you have not yet communicated what your favorite version of A Christmas Carol is, you can text me 877-933-2484. All right. Uh, it's Dickens of a time. I, I, I found yes. out that has nothing to do with Charles Dickens, but... It doesn't. Um, no, it doesn't. It, it's a, I it's didn't a know der- that. Yeah, it's a derivative of... Um, devilkins, which were like oh. little devils. 
So it's a little oh. it's a little devilish of a time. It's a Dickens of a time. Yeah. Devilkins. There you go. It's apparently also no relationship to the deviled egg, but there you go. Okay, so um, C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, J.R. Tolkien. Um, what are we talking about today in terms of Tolkien, A Cave, and a Lost Manuscript? So, you know, I, I'm living in this world because I'm doing this new podcast, Mere Caffeination. And one of the things I'm doing in the, the podcast is... The, the idea would be each season will cover not only each time an interview with someone, but then also um, I'll teach through a, a C.S. Lewis book or someone, one of the Inklings, who are the, the group connected to C.S. Lewis, um, of which Tolkien ranks the highest. And so um, I'm teaching through the screw tape letters in this first season of Mere Caffeination. And I've just been digging into this book, the background behind it. And one of the interesting things in the Screwtape Letters is that he dedicates it to his good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. And so what I'm talking about in terms of the cave is that when C.S. Lewis first met Tolkien, um, the two were at odds. Lewis wrote in his diary that Tolkien was a good chap. He only needed a a smack or two. And so it, it seems he felt like Tolkien was a bit arrogant. And part of the reason for that is... Oxford had lumped together, as I understand it, um, languages and literature. And Tolkien thought they should be separated. Tolkien was a philologist, which is someone who studies languages. And he felt like that shouldn't be just kind of dumped in with literature. And Lewis felt the same way. Now, Lewis had some other concerns. He wanted to more nuance what the literature looked at and care less about contemporary literature and care more about medieval literature. But nonetheless, Lewis thought Tolkien was kind of against him. Once Lewis understood they were kind of on the same page, they differed in ways, but they were kind of on the same page. They joined forces and with some other people too. And they fought against the academic system. They fought against the man. And what they wanted to change, what they spent years changing was a syllabus. (laughs) And so after they were victorious, Lewis wrote to his brother Warney and said, we have been victorious We've defeated the syllabus, something to that effect. And so the group that was fighting for that change had their own name. And you might automatically assume that that name for that group, that influential group, was the Inklings. But it wasn't. It was a group that preceded the Inklings. They called themselves the Cave. And so that's what I'm talking about when it comes to the Cave. The Lost Manuscript is, interestingly, C.S. Lewis wrote the preface to the Screwtape Letters by hand, Um, which was his custom to write out his manuscripts anyways. He didn't type. His brother did. Um, But that manuscript didn't fully make it into print. And there's a paragraph that has been lost that sheds a lot of light on how Screwtape Letters connects to Lewis's other imaginative writings. It is out of this world. Hmm. Um, I have become aware this week that there was a lot of letter writing back and forth and that some letters were never sent as well. And um, that's that's interesting to me. That's curious to me. Like I think about the um, the practice of writing an email and then not sending it. <clears throat> yeah. um, you know, I think that there are times that we feel compelled to say something to a friend or a colleague, and then you know we let it rest, and then we say to ourselves, you know, that maybe that's just let, l- better left unsaid. Now, in terms of emails, we just delete them, but in terms of these handwritten letters. 
um, they persist uh, beyond, mm-hmm. uh, you know, beyond the days of their writing. Uh, and so it's just interesting, right, to see portions of discourse that were had and portions of discourse that were not had. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I genuinely appreciate uh, the way you're unpacking the screw trape letters in your new podcast and the conversations that you're having there. So again, you guys can connect with Dan and get access to the podcast and what we're talking about today at theolatte.com. Let's jump to screw tape is a devilish remix of Proverbs. What? <laughs> well, so I made kind of a throwaway statement and I manuscript out the podcast because if I just kind of wing it i don't think it would be i, I, I manuscript out this show that would not yeah. be true that would so not be true <laughs> so it, i i'm i'm gonna make the comment that i made a throwaway statement i mean it was thought through because i you know wrote it out in in advance but even in writing it i didn't think a whole lot about it and the statement was this screw tape letters is kind of like proverbs proverbs mm-hmm. has 31 chapters screw tape letters is made up of 31 um letters and not only that, but Proverbs really proper, I think properly understood. There's a book called Hear My Son by Dan Estes, um, who's just a wonderful friend and scholar. And long before I knew him, I read this book and it changed the way I see Proverbs um, because he gives a narrative structure to what sometimes we see is just like a leadership book collection of quips and quotes, right? You know, little wisdom insights. Um, But if you think about the narrative structure, it begins with the repetition over and over again of the father saying to his son, hear my son. And in this case, Solomon, um, King Solomon writing it. And so you have the book beginning with the instruction of a father to a son. And the primary instruction is that he would listen to wisdom. And so wisdom is then personified throughout the 31 chapters as a beautiful woman. But she has a nemesis who's also a beautiful woman who's an adulteress. And the adulteress says, Come, listen to me, come to my home, which is ironically the same thing that wisdom is saying. Come to my home, come listen to me. And what we see is that the adulterous woman is offering something that's not intrinsically bad, relationships and intimacy, but she's offering it in the wrong way. So will this young man listen to the the worldly, um, carnal temptation to get what he wants in his own way? The book ends, so that's, I think, Proverbs is probably primarily about navigating those challenges. The book ends with a man, along with his children, who rises up to to praise his wife, and so the virtuous woman. And so the book begins with counsel to a young man, and it ends with a godly family. And the way to get to that desired end is to listen to wisdom. That's so much like the screw tape letters, although it's given from the opposite perspective. So Lewis said his goal in writing the screw tape letters was to give the psychology of temptation from the opposite point of view. And so I feel like Lewis almost, and I've not found anyone who's written this. I'm not saying they haven't. I just haven't found it. It almost seems as though Proverbs or Lewis is taking Proverbs and giving us Proverbs remixed from a devilish perspective. Mm. A Dickens of a time. No, right? A Dickens of a time. (laughs) A Dickens of a time, right? These little devilkins. Um, Yeah, I think that that maybe the devilkins um, are worth exploring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what Dickens is really doing, right? All of the... All of the voices and choices that we have in the midst of whatever perverse generation we find ourselves in um, and choosing, choosing 
to listen to the wisdom that is offered, um, choosing virtue over vice. Like, it is a choice. Absolutely. Yeah. May we have the, uh, may we have, um, yeah, the courage to walk in the way of virtue and listen Mm -hmm. to the wisdom of God. Amen. Hey, we're going to return to our conversation with Dan DeWitt in just a moment. We're going to talk about noble devotion. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. We're simply having a wonderful Christmas time. All right, Dan DeWitt is with us. The um, The podcast, for those of you who are asking, is called Mere, M-E-R-E, Mere Caffeination. Think of Mere Christianity, M-E-R-E, Mere Caffeination. Um, and you can subscribe to it wherever you um, wherever you subscribe to your podcast. And you, while you're there, if you're not subscribing to Mornings with Carmen, well, yeah, you're doing it wrong. So, Dan... <laughs> Uh, um, let's, um, let's talk about something else that you have posted here at Theolatte.com. It's a part of this week's, um, worldview reader as well. Um, and it is this, um, conversation about a noble devotion to talk with us about this. Well, so I, I didn't, it's one of those movies that seems to be promoted kind of late, you know, so I didn't see trailers and think, Hey, in three months, I want to see it. Like I saw the trailer and I'm like, Oh, it's coming out tomorrow, you know? And so I saw the the trailer and the promotion for it right before Thanksgiving break. So we go home and I'm back in my hometown, Jacksonville, Illinois, and we have a historic square with the old theater I used to go to growing up. And so I got my family all to go to a movie they really wanted to see, Wakanda Forever. I've already seen it. It's really, really good. And so I went in and sat with them, but little did they know, I had bought a ticket to the movie that was in the screen next door. Um, which started 30 minutes later, which was the movie Devotion. And so I sat down with them and then snuck out and went and saw the other movie. And uh, I was, you know, given a pretty hard time for my for my nephew about that. But nonetheless, the movie Devotion um, is really, really good. So it tells the historic story of the first black naval pilot. And so his name was um, Jesse um, Brown. And it tells, it doesn't give a lot of his backstory, but you kind of get glimpses of it throughout the movie. And as you would imagine, he had to overcome a lot of prejudice, a lot of people who tried to stand in his way. Um, but he was also a man of great faith. So I have a, I linked to an article on CNN, which, spoiler alert, the article tells you the whole story of the movie. I don't think it necessarily will make the movie experience any less enjoyable, but you, you are going to get the gist of the movie uh, and more so from the article. But it does include some of his letters to his wife, which speak to his faith in God. But one of the interesting things about devotion, I think that the, the t- movie title is about his devotion to his goals and his career, 
um, but also his devotion in terms of friendship. So he has a um, very close friendship with a fellow pilot, Thomas Hudner, who's from the Northeast, um, who's white, and and they have a very committed friendship to one another. I don't want to give the movie away, um, but in real life, there's a, an act of heroism on the part of both men that illustrates their deep friendship. And I think this is exactly the kind of movie we need um, at this time where it seems like this topic always resurfaces. I think of Kanye West's recent removal from Twitter because of um, anti-Semitic um, tweets. We need the reminder of this call to uh, be devoted to one another and that we are created in the image of God. And so this movie is a powerful illustration of all kinds of wonderful virtues, and I highly recommend it. Um, I just love it. I love that you... Um... I love that you have shared this. I heard an interview, um, you know, on on radio um, about this movie as well, and I thought to myself, "Gosh, that's really one that I want that I want to see." And like you, um, had not seen in advance of its release a whole lot of um, a whole lot of information about it. So genuinely appreciate that. Um, okay, so I had a conversation recently, Dan. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking to myself, oh, I wish Dan was, I wish, I wish Dan was on the line right now with us so that Aww. I could un- unpack this a little bit more. Um, because the, the, the conversation, um, centered around the observation that today, um, people who are like promoting a trans agenda, so just mm-hmm. bring that into the frame of your, uh, frame of reference here for just a moment. So, um, People who are advocating the trans agenda, they are advocating that there be a total departure from a person's former identity, um, including, you know, the taking on of a new name, um, but fully embracing a new identity and a new community. Um, And as this person was talking about it, I'm thinking to myself, um, wow, that that that's what we invite people into when we invite them to know Jesus and to become Christians, we, we invite them to embrace an entirely new identity. The old is gone. Everything has become new. Um, you're called by a new name. Um, you, are, um, you are a part of a new community. You have a new family. Um, and I guess that I'm wondering if you've heard anybody sort of positively have that conversation um, or if you have if you have heard what I'm alluding to, which is sort of the the negative parallel there as well. You know, it's interesting. I have a, a link to an article in the Worldview Reader to a Time Magazine article. And the title of the article is um, How to Create a Sense of Belonging in a Divided America. Mm-hmm. And I, as it relates to the, the trans issue, I, I do think um, and also as it would relate to like broader LGB, LGBT issues, um, I do think that Christians need to be cognizant of the fact that persons who have experienced some of the dysphoria related to those topics um, and have embraced um, the ideology that we would differ with are often alienated. And so they are finding a deep sense of belonging in other communities and often because they're rejected from family and faith communities. And so I think we should be cognizant of that. But this notion of longing to belong, I think we all relate to. Um, and so I think that there's an, a certain, I think, communities that are clear and that are, um, of course, in this case, affirming. I think there's something to be said about the intentionality 
uh, the trans community or the LGBTQ community. And please, for people listening in, I'm not I'm not compromising biblical values. I'm just saying that there is something that can be learned to say that there is a close knit community with the notion of we need each other. And I think Christians can learn from that. And I think that there's a book, um, Rosaria Butterfield in her book um, on hospitality, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, makes a similar point. And she makes, Rosaria makes it far better than, than I can, that Christians need to return to hospitality as the key form of evangelism. And I think it's because mm. of this, you know, longing to connect. But yeah, absolutely. When it comes to the call of Jesus, it's a radical, uh, on one hand, it's a radical redefinition of our identity. But it doesn't remove us from the world. And so there's still this tension of I'm a new person. Um, so I have a whole new community of people I call brothers and sisters in Christ that transcends every all of our socioeconomic ethnic backgrounds. But on the other hand, I'm still in the world. And so I still have relationships um, with people who have different worldviews and different ideologies. So I think that that's a good insight that there's a similar call, that it's a radical redefinition of who you are. The real question is, which version of you is true and on christianity i would argue that we have a true perspective of who we are and that's the only way that we could start to experience the kind of fulfillment that grows out of being and becoming who who we truly are yeah thank you so much that's very very helpful um lisa is texting in i missed the name of the movie that you and dan just talked about it's simply devotion there you go the movie is devotion um, all right, Dan, we got to leave it right there. Thank you so much, brother. Um, uh, yeah, we just, we love talking with you. So thank you so Carmen, much. You guys can have a great day. <laughs> you can find Dan, you can find what he's writing about. You can find the podcast at theolatte.com. Listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. I hate people. I hate people. <laughs> Oh, I am sure that is Paul Perot's nod, side nod, sideways nod. Oh, I'm to not the sideways question, nodding nothing. It's full on nod. <laughs> which version of A Christmas Carol is your favorite? We're looking for you to text in the answer to that question um, to 877-933-2484. We're going to continue our conversation this morning about A Christmas Carol and all of the versions of it and why we love it so much here in the United States of America. Um, so what's your favorite version of A Christmas Carol? Uh, yeah, Bah Humbug, I Hate Christmas, like all the good ones. Okay, so you text your answer to that question to 877-933-2484. We'll pick up our conversation here in just a moment. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.